Theologian and author N.T. Wright says in his powerful book, Simply Christian, I quote, Whether within the natural order or within human creation, beauty is sometimes so powerful that it evokes our very deepest feelings of awe, wonder, gratitude, and reverence. Almost all humans sense this some of the time, even though they disagree wildly about the things which evoke such feelings and why. Well, what does it for you? Is it a sunset, the roar of the ocean, the snow-capped peaks of the Rockies, a painting by one of the masters, maybe a book of poetry, the whimper of a new baby or grandchild, an artfully crafted and displayed new recipe, a fully restored 68 Camaro SS, (laughs) a well-produced or edited movie, a classic novel, catching a five-pound largemouth bass or dropping an eight-point buck. Well, each one of us has things that really light us up, and they evoke these feelings of awe and wonder. Lots of things move me, but through the years, one of the consistent sources of beauty has been the book of Psalms. Now, I've been a follower of Jesus since 1974, and in these last 38 years, I've read and then reread the book of Psalms many, many times. And the book moves me like no other book in the entire Bible. It inspires me to worship a transcendent God who is other than I am. It increases my sense of reverence and awe and wonder. It it stirs my sense of gratitude for who God is and what He has done. And part of what I find so powerful and beautiful in the Psalms is that I'm made aware that I'm standing in a long line of God-fearers who have admired and read and worshipped with and sung the Psalms. I'm not alone. And I find great strength and encouragement and comfort in knowing that I'm just one of the many pilgrims from yesterday. You see, for the last 3,000 years, the Psalms have played a, a large part in the lives of God's people. And somehow I find a, a great fellowship of, uh, uh, of sympathy knowing that the saints of old connected with God through the very songs and poems that I'm connecting to God with today. I find that powerful. Now, another compelling aspect uh, about the beauty of the Psalms is that they express the full range of the human experience. Philip Yancey says in his book, The Bible Jesus Read, and I quote, The Psalms are as difficult, disordered, and messy as life itself. These poems present what we might call a mosaic uh, of the human condition and emotion. Doubt, fear, anxiety, joy, praise, hatred, revenge, delight, suspicion, solemnity, pride, disgust, anger, regret, betrayal, friendship, faithfulness, hope, and many, many others. I like what... The Bible commentator J. Sidlow Baxter says about this, and I quote, The book of Psalms is a limpid lake which reflects every mood of man's changeful sky. It's a river of consolation which, though swollen with many tears, never fails to gladden the fainting. It's a garden of flowers which never lose their fragrance, though some of the roses have sharp thorns. It's a stringed instrument which registers every note of praise and prayer, triumph and trouble, gladness and sadness, hope and fear, and unites them into a full multi-chord of the human experience. 
I love that about the Bible in general and the book of Psalms in particular. It, it's just real. There's nothing sugar-coated or photoshopped about the book of Psalms. And as I read these poems and songs, I'm often prone to muse, wow, you can say that? You can think that? You can talk to God that way? Whoa. Uh, like, really? That is in the Bible? It's just when you read Psalms, that's the reaction you often get. So this morning, uh, we're actually going to launch a, a brand new series of messages that, that I've titled Life in the Psalms. Uh, in these weeks together, we'll expre- ex- experience the full range of the human condition. And we'll talk uh, each week in a message that's crafted loosely along the lines of, Lord, I'm so blank, but you're so blank. And uh, then periodically, we may revisit this series through the course of our life in church together, because after all, there are 150 of them, and uh, we got a lot of room to go here. So this morning, we're we're going to discover the beauty and power of the Psalms when we're discouraged in a message that I've titled, Lord, I'm so discouraged, but you are so good. So let's pray together before we look to God's Word. Lord, you are good. We've already declared that in song, and in our heart, we, we echo the refrain, you're so good, good to us. And today we gather together at the start of a brand new week, and we declare your goodness. We say thank you, Lord, for who you are and what you've done. We thank you for life and breath and soundness of mind. We thank you for the faculties that enable us to gather together. And Lord, we know that each one of us faces challenges in our life where we've not yet seen the kingdom there's some element of discouragement or despair. And so I pray that you come to, to speak your word powerfully to each one of us right where we're at. Lord, that, that is the beauty of the Holy Spirit, that at one moment in one service, you can touch and encourage a, a vast array of conditions in the human heart. We welcome you here. We, we bless your presence in Vineyard Kids. We pray for your kingdom to come, your will to be done. In your name, amen. Well, another one of the beautiful things that moves me are the paintings of Claude Monet. Now, this French Impressionist masterful use of texture and light are simply outstanding, in my opinion. And when I visited the Chicago uh, Art Institute uh, and I entered Gallery 243 in the, in the West Wing that houses a number of his paintings, I'm, I'm literally overwhelmed. Uh, the pictures are brilliant, even when you stand across the gallery and view them from about 40 feet away. And while I never first noticed them before I actually saw the paintings, nevertheless, a beautiful frame surrounds each of his paintings. In fact, we'd kind of think it strange, wouldn't we, if, if we walked in the gallery and a canvas were tacked on the wall with a thumb tack. It, it just wouldn't work. Uh, the book of Psalms is like that. We need the frame of context. So let me provide just a few thoughts before we look today at the Psalms. As you read and pray through the Psalms, it's helpful to remember just a few contextual thoughts. Recall, first of all, that the intended audience of the original writers was not primarily other people, you and me even, but rather God. Now, the word Psalms comes to us from a Greek translation of a word that means a poem meant to be sung with a musical instrument. Another Hebrew title for this book would be translated prayers. And so these poems and songs and prayers are a sampling of the author's spiritual journals, as it were. 
We're getting a peek into their soul. These are not the Holy Spirit's pronouncements from on high addressing issues of theology, faith, and practice that are delivered with full apostolic authority. They're very personal prayers and exclamations written in the form of poetry by a wide variety of people uh, from all walks of life, peasants and kings and professional musicians and rank amateurs and, and those that are unknown. We just don't know anything about them. And they, they are all in wildly fluctuating moods. Now, certainly, all of the Psalms are divinely inspired Scripture. They are breathed out as the living Word of God. Technically, there's a collection within the book. There are actually five subsections, each section demarked by what we might call a doxology, a hymn of praise. Seventy-three of the Psalms are attributed to David, twelve to Asaph, who is his choir director, twelve to the sons of Korah, one Psalm to Moses, and fifty are left anonymous. Some have inscriptions, some have subscriptions, many have none. And it's interesting that of the 283 New Testament quotations from the Old Testament, almost half come from the book of Psalms, reiterating its divine inspiration. The New Testament authors looked at the book of Psalms as inspired by the Holy Spirit. But you cannot read the Psalms as a theological textbook or you're going to be thoroughly confused. Individual psalms may actually contradict one another. Uh, You can have a psalm of bleak despair that bumps right up against a psalm of triumph and victory. And that's because the individual poems and songs don't so much represent God to us, although they do that to a degree, but rather the psalms contain people representing themselves to God, which is entirely different and the full range of human experience and condition. And the purpose of the songs or the poems is not so much to theologize and explain it as it is to offer thoughts and stories and images that resonate with our lives, the human condition. We read them and we say, yes, that's exactly what I'm thinking or feeling or experiencing. And so we can't necessarily approach the Psalms as a textbook or you're going to get in trouble. You see, I'm in Gallery 243, and I could look at Monet's painting, The Haystacks, that's there, a series of paintings that are outstanding. I could look at them from a technical point of view, which I actually have, uh, the kind of paint he used, the length of the brush strokes, uh, the spatial arrangement of the objects, how did he treat the light and the shadow, but if that's as far as I ever got, that I would, I would uh, miss the beauty and the power of the soul of those paintings. I'd miss something big. Likewise, the Psalms can be categorized and studied and analyzed, and their historical uh, setting can be uh, examined, and the cultural context can be examined, and the stanzas can be outlined, and the Hebrew can be parsed, and we can exegete the verbs. But And there's value in that kind of study. Don't, don't misunderstand me. But, but if that's as far as we get in the Psalms, then we're probably missing out on God's larger message. It's the beauty and the power that we're after and what they accomplish in life. And so just remember, any single psalm wrestled from its context 
and the rest of the book may actually mislead us. We may believe the wrong things about God, life, experience, and what we should expect. And so uh, you, you may need another psalm or two or three to actually get the bigger picture, which is why I'm often prone to suggest to people, if you're new to the psalms, especially, read the entire Psalter a time or two before you actually start drawing conclusions about what it says. The second note of context, the frame of context, is this. I want you to realize that as you read and pray the Psalms, you'll discover that much of life is lived in the minor key. One author estimates that nearly three-fourths of the Psalms deal with themes of sadness and disappointment, failure, and its lament. I like to think of it as reading and singing the blues. I love the blues, and that's, that's where I cut my eye teeth on, on music, but, uh, and so I'm, I'm partial to the blues. But frankly, a profound part of the human experience is disappointment, pain, suffering, loss. It's accompanying discouragement and our response to those conditions. The goal of life in God is not our personal comfort or happiness. Hey, everybody, let's just think happy thoughts and say happy words. No. Hey, let's just live in chronic denial of the fact that God's kingdom isn't all the way here yet, as it's going to be someday. Or that the world is broken and full of sinful, selfish, and often evil people. You see, not only is that incredibly unrealistic, uh, but it's also a destructive theology to insist and inform that we should just be happy and have a positive confession. That's, that's not biblical. Just believe and you'll be blessed. Well, no, that's, that's not the picture of life that Psalms paints. In the kingdom, we have a theology of power, to be sure, but we also have a theology of pain. And we want to live in the radical middle of both. Theology of power, theology of pain. Right in the middle is where the kingdom of God is. One of the more common Human experiences is disappointment and discouragement, isn't it? None of us are strangers to it. To be human is to sing the blues. One of the very places that uh, that I turn to when I'm discouraged, when I'm singing the blues, is the Psalms, particularly because we find such company there, because God's goodness shines through so clearly against this backdrop. And so, what does the book of Psalms have to say to us when we're discouraged? What does it say to us about life and and about God? Well, through the years, I've found so much encouragement from the book of Psalms that I kind of had a hard time narrowing it down for the purposes of our our study this morning. You know, I love Psalm 34 and 40 and 51 and 86 and 100 and 103 and 105, and, uh, and the list goes on. But for this morning, we narrowed it down to Psalm 42 and 43. If you want to open your Bibles there, we're going to read this in its entirety. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one. You could slip out in the back right there on the table. It's a Bible that's written in a language you can actually understand. It's our gift to you. You can have it. It's the New Living uh, Version. Or you can follow along on the screen. We're going to be reading Psalm 42 and 43, two of my favorites. Now, before we look at the text, let me just remind you that um, these, these two psalms were probably originally intended to be sung or read as one. Um, they were, uh, they have a, a very defined structure. There's three verses or stanzas 
uh, of four lines each, each separated by a repeating chorus, an identical chorus. Actually, a very typical blues progression. Chorus, uh, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, verse, chorus. And if any of you blues musicians know that's often how it, how it works. Real simple melodic arrangement. Um, regarding the simple structure in the first stanza, we'll, we're going to notice the composer's condition. And here's a guy who's deeply discouraged. Depending on your translation, you'll read restless or disquieted or downcast or disturbed. Some com- commentators have suggested that he may be suffering from depression. Um, and then we're going to discover the sources of his debilitating condition. And then in the second stanza, we're going to hear his affirmations and his, his proactive steps. And then in the third stanza, we're actually going to read the prayer that he prayed to God. And then it's punctuated with a repeating chorus. So let's, let's read Psalm 42 and 43. As the deer longs for streams of water, so I long for you, O God. I thirst for God, the living God. When can I go and stand before him? Day and night I only have tears for food, while my enemies continually taunt me, saying, Where is this God of yours? My heart is breaking as I remember how it used to be. I walked among the crowds of worshipers, leading a great procession to the house of God, singing for joy and giving thanks amid the sound of a great celebration. Here's the chorus. Why am I so dis- Why am I discouraged? Why is my heart so sad? I will put my hope in God. I will praise Him again, my Savior and my God. Now I'm deeply discouraged, but I will remember you. Even from distant Mount Hermon, the source of the Jordan, and from the land of Mount Mazar, I hear the tumult of the raging seas as your waves and surging tides sweep over me. But each day the Lord pours his unfailing love upon me, and through each night I sing his songs, praying to God who gives me life. Oh God, my rock, I cry, why have you forgotten me? Why must I wander around in grief, oppressed by my enemies? Their taunts break my bones. They scoff, where's this God of yours? The chorus again, why am I discouraged? Why is my heart so sad? I will put my hope in God. I'll praise him again, my Savior and my God. Now the prayer in chapter 43. Declare me innocent, O God. Defend me against these ungodly people. Rescue me from these unjust liars. For you are God, my only safe haven. Why have you tossed uh, me aside? Why must I wander around in grief, oppressed by my enemies? Send out your light and your truth. Let them guide me. Let them lead me to your holy mountain, to the place where you live. There I'll go to the altar of God. To, To God, the source of all my joy, I will praise you with my harp. O God, my God, the final chorus. Why am I discouraged? Why is my heart so sad? I'll put my hope in God. I'll praise him again my Savior, and my God. Now, can any of you identify with the composer? Yeah, I, I suspect every single one of us at some point in our life could be singing the blues of Psalm 42 and 43. To be human is to be discouraged. Now, let me begin just by asking, well, why do we get discouraged? It can happen on any given day, can it? And suddenly... Difficult circumstances, a setback, a disappointment, a failure, a loss, a pain of some kind, trouble in our family, our children don't disobey or don't turn out quite like we had hoped, our spouse drives us crazy but not crazy in love, the in-laws are always meddling, Uh, maybe we have a failed marriage, estranged from our parents or siblings for any number of reasons, we can't meet anyone suitable to date, eventually get married. 
Maybe for you it's stress on the job. You're underperforming, you're underemployed, you're looking for a promotion and you don't get one. You're unemployed, you don't get along with your boss or your coworkers. You just don't like the job you've got. Maybe for you it's a health-related concern. Uh, our daughter Jenna has diabetes. We've prayed for her countless times. She's received prayer countless times, and for years it has been unyielding to, to prayer, and it's very discouraging. My mother-in-law has suffered immensely from fibromyalgia for the last 20 years. No relief. Some of you have a health-related concern that has never yielded to earnest, sincere prayer. Very discouraging. Maybe it's finances. Maybe for you, there's not enough money at the end of the month. Or you have a little savings, and then, you know, the washer goes out, or your son's truck drops its drive shaft, and you have to help pay for it for $395, or, you know, whatever. You know, whatever. Maybe it's a prayer that you have prayed that's gone unanswered. You've never seen God move. Or you're finding very little motivation now to read the Bible or attend a small group. Maybe for you it's a nagging sin, a hidden habit that no one else knows about, but it's not uh, yielding to self-control. But the point is we don't have to look very far to find sources of discouragement, do we? They're there. We got a lot of material to sing the blues. Now, <clears throat> the psalmist got discouraged from three things that we're often apt to overlook as the root of our problem. I like that because it changes my perspective. You see, I'm often failing to see the real root cause of my discouragement. I tend to fixate on the kinds of things that I just mentioned and with which we all identified. But the psalmist identifies three things. The first is interrupted communion with God. And he uses the powerful imagery of a deer in the wild that is thirsty to illustrate his discouragement that comes from interrupted communion with God. I suspect that uh, the the uh, choir director, Cora, that wrote this, uh, or, or at least is attributed, was accustomed to a regular connection with God. Uh, perhaps through public worship, through the Scripture, public reading or recitation of the Scripture, as was common in the culture, uh, through the ritual of sacrifice, as was common in the in the Jewish uh, uh, religion, maybe personal and corporate prayer. Uh, so there were these these benchmarks by which the author would have maintained communion with God, and and now perhaps lamenting that they were in, interrupted. And I understand the imagery of the psalmist here to convey that his connection to God was somehow interrupted and he now longs to return to the way things were when he felt a vital connection with God. He is uh, discouraged by the state of his disconnected soul. Now, we often don't think about the direct effects of that, do we? Quite honestly. But the root of much of our discouragement comes from our being disconnected with God. Whatever means of grace you've used to keep you connected to God, we find ourselves gradually slowing down or stopping altogether. And then we wonder why we get discouraged. And, you know, it's it's understandable. We're human. We all have good excuses. I'm busy. I'm under stress. Uh, You know, Life's interrupted. It's just never convenient. You know, when life gets back to normal, how many of us have ever said that? You know, th- this is the new normal. Let me tell you, 
There is no going back to normal. This is normal right now. <laughs> you know, we're, we're, we're just out of time. You know, it's at a busy season, the kids, the grandkids, the whatever. There's always something. And, and so it's understandable. What happens? Well, we stop reading the Bible. Uh, if the means of grace with which we've connected to God is maybe prayer or reflection or journaling, we stop. We don't, we don't maybe fast or worship or, or give or share our faith any longer. Uh, we lose expectation that God would actually speak to us or that we could actually hear from Him. Uh, our small group attendance gets spotty. It's really easy to miss, to miss a worship service. You know, been there, done that. I know, I know what to expect. We fail to serve and give to others in a meaningful way. And so all these means of grace that have kept us connected vitally to God begin to slowly decay and diminish. And at its root, the psalmist is saying, this is why I'm discouraged. If we're the uh, uh, the branch and he's the vine, we're cut off from the, the, the source of life. We kind of dry up and shrivel like a, a decayed leaf or a dried up fruit. I think it's interesting if we reflect on on what the text is telling us, that very often the real reason, the real root of our discouragement is a disconnect from God. He goes on, secondly, to illustrate the wounds by others. Verse 3, he says his enemies taunt him. Verse 9 and 10 talks about his enemies. Now, very often as you read the Psalms, you're going to discover that the authors or the, the composers talk about enemies, as in real people. Now, it's interesting that Jesus in the New Testament told us to love our enemies, didn't he? But implicit in that command is the acknowledgement that we would actually have them. You see, you, you can't love your enemies if you don't actually have them. I think, well, that's interesting. Who are the enemies? They're real people. And certainly one of the more painful sources of discouragement in life is what we suffer at the hands of our enemies, their wounds. They come in a wide variety of ways. Maybe we're stolen from or taken advantage of in some way. We're cheated out of what was rightfully ours. Maybe we're sued illegitimately. We're swindled or mistreated in some manner. God's people suffer in those ways. But perhaps more painfully, our relationships get sabotaged through the wounds of our enemies. You know, we're misjudged, we're misunderstood, we're labeled, tried, convicted, and maybe uh, cut off or a relationship is breached or sabotaged in some manner. It may come through gossip and criticism. It may come through lies or half-truths. It may come through rumor and suspicion. And as a result, our reputation gets tarnished. Our character is defamed. And these things are really hurtful, aren't they? And we we know how deeply painful it is for our reputation to be attacked in these ways. And there's often seldom anything we can do to reclaim it. It's like the feathers are out of the pillow. The toothpaste is out of the tube. There's no way to get it back in. And that's what happens with your reputation. You can't go out there and recapture it. When we left our former church just uh, several years ago now, um, there were a number of things said about us that were simply not true. Conclusions people drew that weren't true. Uh, it was very painful, and it's been very discouraging to know that now people harbor things about us as to why we left that simply aren't true. And there's nothing we can do to go back and reclaim what I desire, a, a good reputation. Many of you could illustrate the, a, a similar wound in your own life. So, interrupted communion with God, the psalmist is indicating, secondly, a wound by others, and third source, 
of deep discouragement, this unhelpful brooding over the past. Now, some reflection, excuse me, upon the past is actually healthy. It's God-ordained, you know, especially when we can learn from our mistakes or see what it is that the Holy Spirit is doing in our life as a result. But an unhealthy preoccupation with the past is not helpful because, in my mind, it leads to a heightened sense of regret. And that's a pit that's hard to get out of. I knew a young man years ago who had an opportunity to accept a a position with a large firm in Chicago upon his graduation from college with an invitation to go and work at a prestigious uh, city in the Middle East. But due largely to his insecurity, he said no. And in his words, he settled for a much less challenging and exciting job here in the States. Very difficult decision. And over a number of years, I had an opportunity to pray with him as he unhealthily regretted that decision and was bound in a pit of discouragement. So discouragement from interrupted communion with God, wounds from others, and unhealthy brooding over the past is the human condition, isn't it? And we can all identify. So now, what do we learn from the psalm about the recovery? What do we do? God, I'm so discouraged, but you are so good. Well, the first is a new determination to remember God. Do you notice verse 6? Now I'm deeply discouraged, but I will remember you. In the pit of discouragement, the psalmist decides to look to the Lord, and he purposes to reflect on who God is and what he's done. And then he mentions several places where God has moved powerfully. They're kind of like the benchmarks of, of God's nature and character. And each one of you has them in your life, not necessarily always so visible or memorable, which is why you have to stop and, and focus and, and determine to remember, oh, yeah, God moved powerfully here or there, answered a prayer, provided, revealed himself in power in this way when he did that at that time. We might dial up from our museum of memories, as it were, a time when God moved in our life, when we first experienced his love and forgiveness and compassion, or when he answered a particular prayer, or he showed himself strong in our behalf in a particular situation, or maybe he delivered us from harm or an accident or spared our life in some dramatic fashion. And I find that one of the most helpful ways to remember God is to actually read the other Psalms. So like... Psalm 103, I I love Psalm 103. Let all that I am praise the Lord. With my whole heart, I'll praise his holy name. Let all that I am praise the Lord. May I never forget the good things that he does for me. He forgives all my sins. He heals my diseases. He redeems me from death. He crowns me with love and tender mercies. He fills my life with good things so that my youth is renewed like the eagles. I just like to go back and visit a number of the other Psalms because they help reframe my remembering of God. The second thing we notice in Psalm 42 and 3 is that there's a new confidence in God's faithfulness and presence, verses 7 to 8. Now, the, the psalmist uses here the imagery of the water, the wind, the waves, and the tides, but it's as a metaphor. It's poetic language, a figure of speech to indicate God's powerful presence. And here, here's what I mean. Anytime that you stand on the beach at an ocean or maybe one of the Great Lakes, you're in the presence of antiquity, aren't you? 
You stand there where for thousands and thousands and thousands of years, the wind and the waves have crashed and buffeted on that shore, and no one's ever had to worry that the tide's not going to come in or that the next wave won't make it in. No, it's a pledge. This word picture is a pledge of God's faithfulness to you. And that's that's why he uses this, this imagery, this word pictures. The metaphor of the wind and the water and the waves and the tide speak of God's faithfulness, his unfailing love, his powerful presence. The point is God is faithful, friends, through your discouragement. Right now, in your discouragement, God is saying, I'm faithful. In the same way that the waves will never stop, that the tide will never cease to come in, that the wind will never stop buffeting the shore, so I'm faithful. God is faithful through our discouraging circumstances. He never changes. His presence still surrounds us, even though we may feel alone and discouraged. The circumstances of our life may scream otherwise, but God says, in the same way the wind and the waters, the tide and the shore is Proof of my unending faithfulness, so I'm faithful, even though the circumstances of your life may scream otherwise. God is faithful through our discouraging circumstances. And then the third thing the psalmist did was to resolve to reconnect with God in worship and prayer, verses 8 and 9. Now, the psalmist said, I'm going to begin to pray. I'm going to begin to worship. But you know what? He probably didn't feel like it, just like you and I don't when we're discouraged. He had lots of reasons not to worship and pray, just like we do. So it's interesting that that, that while discouraged and sad, he starts to connect with God, and he said, every night. And I just historically over the last, you know, four decades have discovered that when I commit to pray and worship God, regardless of how I feel, that, that it begins to lift me out of the pit of discouragement. Now, please understand, it doesn't change my circumstances when I begin, any more than it will yours. We're still in the pit of discouragement. Your situation, your life circumstances doesn't change, but it does lift my heart and my life to overlook the problem or turn from the problem to look to the problem solver. It changes my perspective. Sure, our weaknesses and limitations are the same when we begin to reconnect with God through prayer and through worship. But we catch a new view of God. Our perspective is rearranged. We're lifted up to him, his love, his mercy, his power, his faithfulness in the past. And most importantly, his goodness, that God is good. For instance, I might read in Psalm 40, I waited patiently for the Lord to help me. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the pit of despair, out of the mud and the mire, and set my feet on the solid ground and steadied me as I walked along. He's given me a new song to sing, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see what he's done and be amazed, and they'll put their trust in the Lord. Oh, the joys of those that trust in the Lord. And so we can we can dial in even by using the psalm as, a, as an opportunity to reconnect with God in prayer and in worship. And then lastly, we actually can discover the prayer that the psalmist prayed in 43. Now, this is one of the uh, times when the Bible actually captures the snapshot of what it is that God's people said. And uh, 
I think it's interesting that the Bible records prayers. I, I would encourage maybe some of you who, who find a, a particular pit of discouragement challenging to write out your prayers to God. That's no less a, a valid form of prayer. I, I write mine in a journal because I find if I close my eyes and fold my hands like the now I lay me down to sleep style, I just like lose it. Pretty soon I'm skiing on the slopes in Colorado or, or whatever. And so in order to keep my mind focused, I write out my prayers. And then I just read them with my eyes open. And that's a legitimate form of prayer. It's like reading the psalm. It's it's a prayer. So read some of the prayers that the psalmists have already crafted. In verse 1, he tells God what he's thinking and feeling. Don't hold back from telling God. You can't tell God something he doesn't already know. Or or, He's not in for a surprise. Like, oh, my goodness, I can't believe Ben thought that or said that. I mean, if you read some of the stuff in here that they said to God, it, like, blows your socks off. And so just... Tell God what you're thinking and feeling. He says, declare me, defend me, rescue me. I mean, he's just right out there with God. Then in verse 2, he acknowledges God, and then he wonders at the incongruity of his condition with how powerful God is. Have any of you wrestled with that? God, you're all-powerful, you're all-good, you're all-knowing, you're all-wise and wonderful, and you promised to deliver, and here I am stuck in the pit. What is the deal? That's what he was doing in verse 2. Gut-level, honest, heart-wrenching disclosure wondering at the incongruity of who God is and why his life sucked. Then in verse uh, 3, he asked God for truth and light to come. Dispel the rumors, God. Dispel the darkness. Dispel the half-truths. And in a fresh commitment and sacrifice, the psalmist said, uh, I'm, I'm going to uh, be filled with joy. Now, before his life changed, he made that commitment. Before feeling any better... He, he recommitted to worship, recommitted to prayer, and then his life was filled with joy. And in the refrain, we notice that fear gives way to hope and sighing gives way to singing. So my suggestion, my encouragement this morning, friends, is that when we're feeling discouraged, that we remember God, that we reflect on his faithfulness and goodness, and we reconnect with him in worship and prayer. Now, to conclude this morning... As we prepare for singing songs, I thought it'd be uh, really helpful to actually uh, confess one of the poems, the more powerful psalms, out loud together as a way of praying. We usually wrap up the message with a prayer, so we're going to do that in a little different form by actually uh, praying together the hundredth psalm. Okay, so let's uh, let's just say this out loud together. Are you ready? Shout with joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before Him singing with joy. Acknowledge that the Lord is God. He made us and we are His. We are His people, the sheep of His pasture. Enter His gates with thanksgiving. Go into His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him and praise His name. For the Lord is good. His unfailing love continues forever. And His faithfulness continues to each generation. Amen. So what we're going to do now is move into a time of, uh, of, of worship through song and communion. And uh, as the uh, uh, opportunity now is presented to us, we'll worship through the giving of our gifts to God and the offering as well. And as the uh, offering bag comes, uh, box comes down your row, feel free to uh, contribute to God as you're, as you're led and as you're able and drop in your completed Connect card in the box as it comes down your row as well. Lord, we're just thankful for those that... Uh, uh, are here today and pray that you would uh, just have your way in our lives, lifting us from the pit of discouragement into your presence once again. Uh, put your power on your word to our life. And now, Lord, as we give to you in the offering, as we give to you in our song and in sharing of communion, we pray that you would uh, just take all these gifts for what they are, tokens that we want our life to count for you. Amen.